Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. This episode is sponsored by Atkins Realis, a world-leading design, engineering and project management organisation. For more information, visit www.atkinsrealis.com. Hello, welcome back to the Prospect podcast. I'm Ellen Halliday, Deputy Editor at Prospect, and today I'm joined by Nicola Kutcher, an award-winning investigative journalist who's worked on projects including the fascinating Riverside documentary with George Monbiot that covers this country's polluted waterways. Today, we're talking about a similar theme, the countryside and the places that we often think of as our green and pleasant lands. In Prospect's November issue, Nicola has written about national parks and specifically, excuse my Welsh pronunciation, Banau Brechinion, formerly known as the Brecon Beacons. As she tells us in the piece, nature actually really struggles in many national parks, but in Wales, they're working on a plan to revive it. So Nicola, thanks so much for joining us today. Where are you speaking to us from? I'm speaking from Herefordshire, just on the English side of the, the border. Well, I'm really near Hay on Wye, which is in Wales. Yeah. Yeah, that's a beautiful part of the world. So first of all, I'd love to get a sense of what it is about national parks that captured your imagination for this piece. Many of us will, of course, have visited national parks around the country, but what was it that sparked your interest and made you think that there was a a story to tell here? I think I was just shocked when I found out that national parks generally are more nature depleted than their surroundings. I think we imagine national parks as protected landscapes, you know, places where we can go and enjoy the natural world and we think it has these higher protections. But actually to find out that things like in England, the sites of special scientific interest in national parks are generally in a worse condition than sites of special scientific interest outside of them was just very shocking to me. And and then when I saw the Banai come out with this new film to announce its name change with Michael Sheen, you know, striding across the hills, and he actually acknowledged nature here is doing worse than outside the park. I thought that was so brave that the Banai did that and so bold that I thought, right, OK, here's an opening because here's a national park that's telling the truth about this nature emergency, about the way these protected landscapes are failing, you know, failing to protect nature. That's really interesting. And now I'm interested in how are they going to turn it around? Because they've got this big plan. They announced a very ambitious new management plan to have nature recovery. And then I was really interested in, well, how will they do it and how will they buck the trend? Because as you know, across the whole country, we've been losing nature. The latest State of Nature report tells us again that one in six species are at risk of extinction. You know, things are really bad. And the governments are saying we need our protected landscapes to do even more. At the moment, we're not even reversing the decline. 
So I thought they could be an interesting case study of how they could turn it around. What does that mean that nature is you know, often doing worse inside national parks and outside? How is that, how is that measured and, and you know, how much do we know about that? Yeah, to be honest, I don't know loads about that other than that they kind of survey the sites and see how many kind of qualities of the sites are in favourable condition, i.e. how many bits of the habitat are healthy and functioning as an ecosystem should. You know, the diversity of species you find within them. And I know that the scores are worst in national parks on average. Of course, there are exceptions everywhere. But what I take from that is that when I looked into it, you think, oh, national parks are not like the national parks in America where they they bought land and they own the national parks owned and they're really protected. Here, you know, after the Second World War, the British government designated parcels of land as national parks, but they're fundamentally still mainly farmland. We often designated our uplands and they're all private farms. And farming is actually the major driver of wildlife decline because of livestock, you know, grazing out other life. You know, in other kinds of farming, you know, you've got pesticides. All of these things are what we believe to be mainly driving declines in bird life and stopping the revival of different habitats, whether that's scrubland, whether that's trees and forests. Then it made sense to me. It's like, oh, of course, yeah, if we're designating our uplands as national parks and they're actually kind of ecologically barren because we've tried to protect them by freezing them at this moment in time when we already had grazing across our uplands how can nature recover when they're being grazed by sheep yeah there's a huge amount there that i'd love to um, unpack over the course of this conversation you know the kind of governance structures the idea the nostalgic ideas that you know we might have about the countryside um, and also the kind of very real businesses and livelihoods that that run in the countryside um but so, so when we're talking about, about nature faring worse, putting this in the context of your of your other work, we're talking about biodiversity, which is, I think, partly your, your Riverside documentary. You looked at that, that kind of health of rivers, but also, you know, there's the, the chemical pollution of the countryside and in rivers. That's, that's a huge story. Did that work on Riverside kind of help guide you towards this story? Yeah, it definitely did. So Riverside was yeah a documentary a live documentary that was presented by George Monbiot and directed by Franny Armstrong and so because I live on the River Wye which is as you'll know often in the national news now because it's hugely polluted and the River Wye has a particular problem so unlike many rivers that suffer from grotesque sewage pollution we have sewage pollution but on the Wye over 70% of the nutrient pollution is coming from agriculture so that took me into investigating farming so on the Wye you know there's over 20 million chickens in that catchment. It is the chicken capital of the country. And, you know, those chickens produce a lot of manure, and then that manure is essentially far too much manure for the land to absorb. So we have a problem. And then there's other livestock, because, you know, Herefordshire and the surrounding counties were always farming counties, but they always had sheep and cattle. But now those same farms have poultry units, which are much better thought of as kind of factories than sheds, is factory farming. So one farm could easily have 600,000 birds, and that's on top of all the manure that they already had from their other livestock or their dairy operations. So it's all about concentrating that in one place. So yeah, what I'd learned from Riverside led me to talk to lots of farmers and look into farming and research the landscape. And you realise that the story of a river is the story of the land. You know, the river is entirely affected by the land use surrounding it. So then I thought, well, this is interesting. I'm now an investigative journalist that lives in the countryside. I used to investigate all sorts of stories when I lived in London. But now I thought, no, I really want to investigate the landscape because actually 
this is the big story of our time. You know, whether you're looking at climate change or flooding or biodiversity loss, I think those big emergencies, whether we succeed or fail, will play out in these rural landscapes. And there's not many journalists out here. So, yeah, I've, I've really enjoyed turning my attention to those landscapes and how land is used and learning about it. But I've got a lot to learn. I'm not a farmer. I'm seen as an incomer. I am an incomer. You know, I, I now have children here. I have a stake in this place. But, of course, it's very hard to kind of, you know, earn trust and, and tell people you're really willing to listen because there are proud farming traditions here. And, you know, I live on a farm in Herefordshire and I was treated with huge suspicion when I arrived, especially when people found out I'd worked with George Monbiot. So he's not necessarily very popular with lots of farmers. And that's what I enjoyed so much about this piece, is listening to all those voices because this challenge is a huge cultural challenge as much as it is an environmental challenge. And it's a psychological challenge because, as you say, how people see the landscape is so different. So because I've you know, read George Monbiot's books like Feral, I used to live up in Snowdonia in Areri and I saw out my own window for years the, the sheep grazing and we, I lived on a common. And some of the local farmers would say, you know, no trees grow here. But I would see where there was brambles, that shoots of rowan and ash were coming up. But they just, you know, that was only possible where there was enough scrub to protect them. And when there wasn't, the sheep would, of course, eat it straight away. So I saw, I kind of saw what I'd read with my own eyes. But I also saw that that was a contested narrative and that the farmers that had been on that land for generations were saying, well, there's never been trees here. And they were right, too, because the sheep were eating them. But they saw that as entirely natural and I saw that as, well, we've brought in sheep and now the sheep are taking out what would naturally be here. And when you look at the history of Snowdonia, it was a forested place, but it's now not really seen as that. I really enjoyed speaking to Owen Shears, the poet and great author and writer for this piece, because he wrote the script for the film that the Banai made with Michael Sheen. And he, he was really honest about saying, yeah, he, he grew up here around the Banai, and he loves that landscape, but he said he always associated it with natural beauty. And because he's from a farming background as well, he's got farmers in his extended family, he thought, yeah, that's beautiful, that's natural, that's the natural world. And then it was only with education and ecological education and learning what had been there before that now he looks at the uplands and thinks that they're arid and bare and, and not beautiful at all. And so his journey helped me because it is only through knowledge and understanding that people's views will change and then you see the landscape in a different way but that is it's difficult and it can't be incomers coming and telling people what to see because it's much deeper than that yeah well I mean I obviously completely agree with you Nicola that I think this is a really important story and completely agree with you that the the way we use our land and our ability to restore nature is going to be so important for for tackling climate change in the future. But it's not a glamorous subject, is it? And it doesn't often get that much attention. Um, so it was kind of interesting when the Banai released this new management plan. Again, not a kind of super attractive word, but they did it with Michael Sheen um, and they they released this video and there's quite a lot of kind of promotion around the idea that they were going to do something new and do something different but it did cause quite a lot of controversy at the time didn't it it's also also that change of name yeah I mean I couldn't believe that exactly most of the coverage was about the change of name so I went to the parks launch the launch night in Brecon with you know lots of great people were there everyone from the park authority interested local environmentalists and farmers 
And I thought, oh, my story, I want to do an in-depth piece about this. It'll be way too late. But then nearly all the press coverage focused on the name change. And it was huge. You know, it was on you know, all the talk shows. It was on Jeremy Vine call-in shows. And I was like, wait, everyone's missing the real story, which is about the landscape. Um, I was also shocked that changing, you know, to its Welsh name, which, by the way, obviously it's in Wales, the Banai Brecheiniog has always been on all the signs. It says Brecon Beacons and it says Banai Brecheiniog. So when it's a local, you've seen that name. It's just saying we're putting the Welsh name first. I can't think of any other nation that would use its, its tradition, you know, use its own language and get such a slamming for it. I just thought, why? of course, it's Wales. Why can't it use its Welsh name? That seems fine. But yes, lots of people... There was all sorts of noise about, oh, they may as well say they don't want the English to visit anymore and all this kind of thing. And you think, no, they're just celebrating the, their own heritage. So, yeah, I was fascinated. But, yeah, it caused a lot of controversy for the park and there was a lot of hate mail sent at them. And, yeah, but basically the noise was all about the name. And I thought the far more interesting story was what they were trying to do. And I think the thing that comes out really well in your piece is that this is actually sort of a story about about governance and about about power, because if, if we come back to that point that you mentioned earlier, national parks don't actually, in the UK, own most of the land within them. So can you tell us a bit more about how that plays out and what that means when a park decides that they want to do more to protect nature? Exactly. Well, the way that the people at the park have explained it to me is they're basically using their convening power, which sounds not very glamorous, but they're saying we have a brand of being the park with a local planning authority, just like, so we're in the national park, like you would normally go for planning permission to your local council. They're effectively the planning authority for the area of the national park. So they, but often that authority is just used to kind of stop, you know, big new developments that might spoil natural beauty. It's not that much more ambitious than that. But yeah, they're saying, no, we have a brand and, you know, lots of tourists come here and we bring together lots of groups within the National Park. We can talk to farmers and landowners as the National Park. So they're saying by pushing in that direction, they're really using their cultural influence, right? Essentially, it's a soft power. They don't have a hard power to do this. They can't make farmers do anything they don't want to do to change land use. But they can try and convene meetings, do advice things, encourage a new direction and try and get champions within the park to really lead the communities in a different direction. And they're also interested in doing things like setting up citizens' assemblies in different areas of the park to try and bring local people together to say, you know, how would we bring more nature back? How could you help do that? You know, what do we want as a community to make this landscape work better? And be more... Because ultimately, you know, Owen Shears writes about it really beautifully where he says... He wants to live at a time that's not marking the end of everything, but the beginning of something, you know, because at the moment it feels like we're at the end of everything. When you're only seeing species go down and extinctions, it's alarming. And, you know, climate anxiety is real and biodiversity grief is real. And actually, if people live in a place where life is returning, it's so good for your mental health. And you, you, everyone takes pleasure in that. You know, even the even I say, but lots of farmers I've interviewed they'll be sad to see less fish in the Y. Whether they're fishermen that have enjoyed that fish or whether they say, God, when I was a boy, this was, you know, buzzing with life. They feel that loss as well. But if we all feel that loss and notice something's not right, you know, we're the people with the power to turn it around, but particularly the landowners. But what you get to is often, obviously, farmers have farmed in a certain way, responding to market incentives, responding to subsidies. And if you change those incentives and subsidies, then... They'll change. I mean, this this way of farming now isn't how it's always been. So it's also a reminder that, yeah, all these things come back to power and what 
we do as a society and how we set subsidies and land management strategies and and the market obviously around food and how much we pay for food if those things change the farming and the landscape could change very radically actually quite quickly after the break we'll talk more about the culture war of trees and the role of national parks in our collective imagination if you enjoy our podcast and would like to consume more of our journalism then we'd encourage you to subscribe A subscription unlocks full access to Prospect content across newsletters, web, app and print. And right now, a subscription to Prospect costs as little as £1 per month. Visit prospectmagazine.co.uk and subscribe now. Media Confidential is a brand new weekly podcast that takes you behind the headlines. When the media goes dark, democracy is at risk. Monitoring those people that monitor us is vital. Expect revealing, high-profile interviews in-depth analyses. That's me, Alan Rusbridger. And me, Lionel Barber. Strive to discover the truth behind the clickbait. So follow, like and subscribe to Media Confidential brought to you by Prospect Magazine. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I mean, the farmers that you have spoken to around that area, do you find that they're open to these questions about, you know, doing things differently? Uh, yeah, so some are. It's, there is a culture war. I mean, it's so sad. In every element of our society now, we see it being stoked up. And obviously, you know, Richard Sunak's been doing it with the imaginary meat tax. But there is, a, there is definitely a feeling from farmers that they are under threat or that they're, you know, misunderstood or disrespected. So it is awkward if I came in and started a conversation with, how do you want to, you know, should we reduce your livestock numbers? If they see that as a vegan agenda, that will immediately have a kind of pushback because it's some kind of, it's an, it's an emotionally triggering thing. But what I found when I talked to farmers, and obviously they're all different, you know, some farmers are really passionate about nature recovery and are really excited about the idea of bringing in different breeds. It doesn't even mean no livestock. You know, you could have, you know, wild 
kind of small pigs that disrupt the bracken and enable new trees to grow. You can have wilder kind of old forms of cattle, different breeds, that also disrupt the landscape and enable far more biodiversity to come back. So it doesn't mean no livestock. And some uh, equally farmers have, you know, seen the results of giving some land back to nature and seen how that natural regeneration can happen and find that hugely exciting and inspiring and also see the benefits, you know, reduces flooding down down the hill and they think they're doing a good thing for, you know, their neighbours that live in the village that were suffering from flooding. They go, wow, actually, if I, you know, allow my land to regenerate, then I can resolve some of the flooding issues down there and I'm doing a good thing. So, of course, there are farmers that see that, but certainly within the Banai and other areas, there's a lot of traditional sheep farming and they don't want people like George Monbiot or me or anyone else telling them that they can't do something that they've always done. And so even pointing out the damage it does can be, you know, quite controversial. So the farmer I sat down with for this, Edwin Roderick, yeah, I mean, he struggles to believe that there were ever trees on the hills, just like the farmers I'd met in Snowdonia. Fundamentally, that's not his reality. So he pushes back on that. At some points in my conversation, I thought this is a bit flat earthy because there were trees here. And I don't know how to get past this point in our conversation if you can't acknowledge that there were trees but then you did find common ground, like, as I include in the piece, I say, you know, what could you do differently? And he said, well, I, you know, my son spends a lot of time farming the sheep and cattle. If we had fewer animals, he would have a better quality of life. So if that could work economically, yeah, I can see that would benefit, that would benefit us. We'd be open to that if the subsidies enabled it. So I was like, right. And similarly on hedgerows, his just eyes lit up when we talked about hedgerows and he was saying, you know, no one is prouder of hedgerows than, than me and my family. You know, you go to St Fagan's Museum and you'll see my granddad and the Breckenshire hedge. And I was like, right, there's a real pride there and there's a heritage there. And actually, I was saying to him, so if, you know, people came in and they wanted to help you restore your hedgerows and there were volunteers locally that wanted to be involved with nature recovery, how would you feel? Was, oh, I'd, you know, I'd be open to that. So go, wow, because that plays into his, his view of the landscape, has hedgerows in it. So if we can make those hedgerows bigger and thicker and fuller and support far more life, that's a win for everybody. And it feels like quite a small win, and we're not going to have nature recovery if everyone just has a few more hedgerows. But if Edwin will give us some hedgerows, maybe another farmer would offer something else. And, another, and you know, it is, the culture can change if that's the direction of travel. And I hope that, you know, the Banai is setting that course. But it's scary how much resistance there is to change and how little we can get. I don't want the piece to seem optimistic to the point where I think... I was looking basically for common ground where you can try and work together rather than get, you know, get out of the oppositional feeling of the environmentalists want this and the farmers want this. I wanted to find where things worked for everybody and everyone could be part of a journey of recovery. And, and so I... I wrote the piece more in that direction, but there was definitely a piece that could have been written that was angrier and more despairing and saying, this is just not going to move fast enough to recover nature. I mean, I think that perspective from the farmers shows from their side kind of how important these stories are about the land that they have and how closely connected their identity is with with their view on the land. And equally, the Owen Shears and the poets and the Michael Sheen, the stories there are also so important in kind of getting people to engage with land restoration. I think I think that's really interesting how much identity and storytelling is is bound up in in all work around land restoration at the moment. Yeah, I really thought that the stories yeah, the stories were crucial and you had to understand how deep 
you know, the identities go and the stories go. So that kind of played out in the park when they were looking at... They originally had this... Well, I was told from officers in the park that they tried to have a target on tree cover because... So people like the Campaign for National Parks said, wow, the Van Nuys plan is great, but there's no actual targets here. You know, they were criticised for that. You have missions and objectives, but you don't have targets. So how are you going to do it? But the officers were saying, you know, targets were divisive. They said, we want to have 35% tree cover. And you've got the National Farmers Union and farmers immediately pushing back and saying, well, you're you're trying to take productive land. You know, this grazing land, this grows food, this grows sheep. So don't you threaten our productive land? That's how we make, you know, of course, that's their living. That's how they make money. Though it's blended, sometimes they'll say that's about food security. But actually, lots of people told me that most of the sheep within the Banai are exported. You know, we don't eat them locally. So how all of these things become contested. But what was interesting to me was, yeah, the targets were triggering. And it was like, again, it instantly made you think, no, you're trying to take something that is ours and you're trying to take away yeah, our livelihood, our way of life. You know, what would we do if we're not stewarding these animals? And so you have to find other ways around it. And so I understand why the Banai have tried to set this trajectory of change rather than get stuck on numbers. Because maybe you'll, leave, you, maybe you'll get there, but you won't get there by saying it up front. You'll get there in some other way. Your piece talks about that specific context. Um, and obviously, you know, every, every park may have its own specific context to negotiate when it's thinking about how to, how to restore nature. But if we zoom out, there is a, a kind of national government story as well, because we had, you talk about the landscapes review in that, which looked at how parks are managed and investigated whether there's a better way, basically, to kind of bring in national interest as well as as local ones. How do you feel that balance plays out at the moment between the local interest, the people who live in around the park versus, you know, people maybe geographically further away, but who still really need nature to be restored in those places? Yeah, no, I thought that that was a really fundamental thing near the beginning when I started researching this, that there's a problem with the governance. I think there is. So in Wales, there's 18 members of the National Park Authority, 12 of them come from local authorities, and six of them are appointed by Welsh government. So yeah, you've got this two to one favouring of local interests. And in rural areas like where I am, You know, the local authority members are nearly all older white men. They just are. And they're mostly landowners. And so you just get one very particular view. And that that plays out in the park authority. So right now, I think there are only... Well, there's actually only one woman now that's a member of the park authority in Wales. So it has, you know, in in the Banai. So, yeah, you just think, well, that's not representative of our nation. Um, And also, you don't get the expertise because the Welsh government-appointed members are brought in supposedly to bring in a different set of skills... And previously, there were a number that were championing nature recovery. So there was someone from the Woodland Trust. There was someone from Natural England. There were people with these backgrounds, but they all got edged out or quit because of the difficulties they found trying to bring about change when they're in the minority. And equally from the, the side of the local members, they thought, who are these people, often well-educated, private school people from England, coming in, telling us what to do? You know, this feels like colonialism. You know, get out. This isn't your land. But a National Park Authority is there to serve the nation as well as the local people. So, yeah, Julian Glover's review recommended that National Park authorities should just be comprised of experts that are appointed for their expertise and that they could be advised by community representatives that are the voice of the community. And that seems to me to probably be a better governance model. I mean, that's how most charities and businesses and other people are managed. You have experts or well-qualified people supposedly running different areas. I think it'd be a good idea because, again, in the State of Nature report recently, 
the number one recommendation was to kind of improve the quality of our national parks and our protected areas. And you go, well, if you want to do that, you have to equip them to do that. And at the moment, they'll often be managed by people with very local interests that are not going to be prioritising nature recovery and not going to have the skills and the ecological background to know even how to do that. So, yeah, we need that expertise in our parks and we need them to have more power to actually enact those visions and ideas and funding streams to obviously pay for that work to be done or enable farmers to make a profit from it. Well, it'll be really interesting to see in in Wales how those kind of projects of citizens' assemblies, other, you know, for, forms of kind of consensus building building kind of progress. Kind of looking forwards, what have you got your eye on that you're going to be be watching about where this story goes. I, I want to pick up more and more parcels of land around Wales where where experiments are happening, I guess, to see how that changes the neighbours' views. Because that's what I'm really interested in, because it's the same, you know, the Wildlife Trust in Radnorshire has bought a, a farm surrounded by farmland and they're calling it Wilder Pentuin. Um, and... And those, any kind of project within a farm landscape to rewild, you know, neighbours can see it as messy or neighbours think, what are you doing? You're messing up your farm or, you know, your mess is going to kind of creep into our land. And there's, because they've kept pride in that kind of tidy, neat landscape, people that disrupt it are often treated in a quite hostile way. But what I'm interested in is following where the rewilding is happening or following where nature recovery is happening or different ruminants are brought in to disrupt. I want to follow those stories and see how that has a ripple effect on the neighbours, whether people are won over when they see that or whether their reservations remain and their dislike of it remains and they think it's spoiling the landscape that they love and the view that they want to look out of. So that's what I'm really interested in, is following where recovery is happening or being attempted. How do the neighbours react over time? And I want to spend time walking those paths and talking to those people over the hedges and uh, and following how that develops. Well, thank you, Nicola, so much for giving us the backstory on that reporting and for sharing your enthusiasm for the subject because it really, really comes through. So thanks so much. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Thank you. Thanks so much to Nicola for joining us. And for listeners at home who want to read her piece in full, do grab a copy of Prospect magazine, which also includes an exclusive interview with the Governor of the Bank of England, Andrew Bailey, as well as an essay by Jane Shaw on reparations in the Church of England and an excellent political column by Sam Friedman. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, then why not check out our other two, Media Confidential and Prospect Lives. Just subscribe or follow wherever you get your podcasts.